Now, your first UK number one was Blockbuster. Yeah. Uh, what a great intro. First few bars, everyone knows that song, don't they? Yeah. Were you surprised straight away? Because you had a couple of number twos before that, so I guess you knew you would get there eventually. Somebody in the system knew when other bands or artists were releasing things. I mean, we were on the same label as David Bowie, uh, RCA. So you kind of knew when he who shall not be named, Mr. Glitter, and when Slade, and you tried to stagger it. So you had a couple of weeks grace either before or after. And with Blockbuster, it was the beginning of the year. Now, everybody, the world and his wife, was starting to record Christmas singles, and we never did. So we knew that every no one would be releasing anything in January. And it was never, shall we say, one of those periods where people would release records. They would always leave it until the spring, say. January, February was considered a funny period. So we came out with, uh, with Blockbuster only to find out that our record company were releasing The Gene Genie by David Bowie a week before ours because he didn't have a Christmas record either. So we're now thinking, all right, so we're in the offices of, um, of RCA, Mick Tucker, the drummer and myself, and the guy said, oh, uh, I've got David, and he put an acetate on it, David Bowie's new single. And lo and behold, it's the same guitar riff as Blockbuster. Dun, 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 ga, dun, dun, dun. And I went, you can't release that. He's going, why? And I said, it's the same guitar riff, is it? This is the guy who's a record label. And so we're, we're, we're now horrified. But when you listen to the two records, David Bowie's Gene Genie was like um, the Yardbirds uh, version of I'm a Man. Yeah. A little bit more raw. Ours was a f- big production with um, the guitar riff was slightly hidden by the tremolo guitars and the and the vocals doing that uh, uh, yeah. thing, you know. So And, of course, the A&R guy said, oh, we think yours is a number one smash, you know. Mick Tucker and I are thinking we're going to go and bury our heads somewhere and, and hide. But he was right. came not more by mistake really but um phil wainman producer had vox had given him a, a pedal to give to me uh, a new pedal which had a few effects in it and a wah-wah and he brought it along to the studio and he said um it's yours but i'm not giving it to you yet because we're going to use it on this recording and then he hit the siren button and we're all going yeah that, that, that's, that's, that's quite wild now you and trevor came up with love is like oxygen in 1978 uh, won you and Ivan Novello award as well, didn't it? W- what a great song that was, Andy. Pull out the bag. Yeah, seventy-seven. We were recording. In, in fact, seventy-seven. We recorded two albums back to back, almost. We were doing the last album for RCA, and there was a new album due, level-headed for Polydor, where we were moving to uh, the German label. I mean, I always thought. I'm the kind of person, I'm like a football fan. You know, my hometown is Wrexham. I've always supported them and always will. I thought when you signed up with a record label, but we weren't signed to the label. We were signed to a production company run by Nicky and Phil. 
with the band also involved on on percentages. So it's like leasing a car. Eventually, the car might come back to you, and then you can lease it elsewhere. Um, and that that's what we were. We we were a lease deal with RCA, so we could go elsewhere. But I would have probably liked to have stayed at RCA. You know, um, it was comfortable. It was, and probably that that's why they wanted change. You know, so we're doing one album for one label and starting another album for the new label. How to separate what you're doing at that time is mm. is difficult. The, the the last album for RCA probably still sounds more like the old classic suite uh, with a little bit of heaviness thrown in. And the new record that, that's with Love Is That like Oxygen on it that's going to Polydor sounds more like an American AOR band, you know, much more diverse and um, showing, should we say, a bit less hard rock and a little bit more maturity, perhaps. The, the Love Is That Oxygen song, I'd written lyrics about three, four years before that, which was the chorus, Love Is That Oxygen, Too Much, Too High, Not Enough, You Die, I think is what I'd written. And I was always looking for something to fit that. And Trevor Griffin being a very nice, tasteful keyboard player, he loved the uh, the double tempo stuff like um, Super Tramp, and he and I were always jamming, you know, Dreamer and, thing, and th- things like that. Whenever, and he was our sound engineer when we used to go on the road. And Trevor and I really liked each other, and and he started to play these little bits. He said, "I've got this idea for a a kind of rock opera, you know, like a twenty minute thing where it goes from one thing to the other." And within that, I heard three themes. My portable tape player with me, and I said, can you just play that part? And can you play the idea for that part and the double tempo bit? So he put all that together. I then went back to my studio uh, after we'd been in, we'd been in Paris, the Chateau d'Eroville, and we got the whole album done. But, th- but we were missing one song, and I felt this, this is the song that, that we're missing. And when the record company heard what we'd done, they said, the usual, that magical hit single isn't there. I had to say, well, I'm working on something at the moment. That weekend, I went back to my home studio, put Trevor's three bits together, and lo and behold, this Love Is That Oxygen lyric fitted perfectly. I then realised, because I'd played the guitar, I hadn't sung it at the same time. It's hard to to play the guitar okay. with that choppy bit yeah. and sing the the chorus. So I shot myself in the foot, really, <laughs> you know, thinking if I'm gonna. And every when everybody heard the chorus, they said, "Well, that is the chorus, your voice." So I sang the chorus, and Brian sang the verses. Mm. You know, everybody was kind of wow. I then got the arranger who'd arranged the the classical bits the with the 40-piece orchestra that, that there is on a couple of the songs to sit in with me. And I said, I want an arrangement for this middle section, this sort of semi-classical thing. And he took it from there to there. So I have to say that his arrangements and his ideas just bolstered and took yeah. took it up to a new level. And of course, he then played the, the, the master pianos on the... Um, on the track and um, and the the triumphant fanfare intros and that's what we end up with um, you know something that uh, an area that we've ne- we'd never ventured into but it but it takes a lot of people it, it, it's not just me you know all, all I did I'm I'm like the Mike Chapman who who wrote the initial idea for the song. 
But without Steve and, uh, and Mick and myself and Jeff Wesley, the, the arranger, keyboard player, and Trevor's ideas, and then the engineer, uh, Louis, in, in, the, in the studio, you know, we, it's a big thing. You can't, you can't just shove it all on one person's shoulders, you know. and sadly passed away in 2002 after a six-year battle with leukaemia. Steve died last year over in the States. A sad time, Andy, because who would have thought you'd been the only remaining band member? Yeah, it, it, it started to make me think about um, what, I, what was I really doing this for? You know, um, Steve and I used to keep in touch um, and I was a little bit uh, surprised, should we say, back in 2009, 2010, when... He all of a sudden he started to do some gigs in America under the name Sweet, and I I thought so I, I called him up. The, the reason we found out was when you look up Sweet and email addresses and phone numbers and w- where to send things, automatically my office comes up. So my agent Nigel received this contract for a gig in the Midwest somewhere in America, and he he went. You don't know anything about this, do you? And I said, no. He said, oh, well, he said, it's what I've heard on the grapevine that Steve is starting to do some gigs over there. And I went, oh, right, okay. So Nigel, being the kind of man he is, he played along with it for a moment. He sent them something back saying, "Um, however much we'd like to do this gig, uh, we are on tour in Europe at this time. And... um, uh, I don't think we're going to be able to to fit it in, and so the guy came back to him and he said, "Oh, oh, we've we've definitely got." He said, um, "He said the contract's with a, a a somebody Smith," and I said, "Oh God!" I said, "I think that's the guy who Steve's got him was writing songs with or got involved with in in L.A." So I then phoned Steve and he he I said, "Surely, if you'd have wanted to do some gigs, you should have called me, shouldn't you? Um, we could have done something together." Oh, I'm only doing a couple of gigs, you know, out there. Well, it lasted, you know, a little bit longer than I thought it was going to last. Um, And we kept in touch and I kept saying to him, you know, we should still think about doing something. I'll come over to L.A. or you you come over here. But it just never happened. I actually think he was not well for a lot longer than people think. I knew he was having problems when about four or five years ago I saw... Um, a video, somebody sent me a video and he was sitting down on stage and the band that he had with him had kind of made some kind of thing that they put behind the chair he was sitting on so it looked like a throne, you know. Um, And I was just starting to wonder, it it just looked a little bit bizarre. And then since then, we've met a couple of people who were good friends with him and they said, Realistically, um, he was not really in full control of 
of everything you know that, that was kind of going on which which disturbs me a little bit because that means maybe there were people taking advantage sure. of, of situations and and that is exactly what happened with Brian at the end of the 90s I mean for God's sake 52 that's far too young to, yeah, to yeah, die you know to, yeah. to not be here but his band um, tried to be the sweet after he died it only lasted a, a very short period because realistically the fans are not going to no, handle not. this. No, they're not. You know, which, which, yeah. whichever way you look at it, it you know, you, you think, yes, they may have seen these guys on stage with Brian at some point, but the fans aren't stupid. If you treat them like, like they're stupid, you, you'll get it. You'll, you'll get stupid back, yeah. you know, yeah. and, and it's not something that... Um, that sits easy. The Mick, the Mick thing w- was probably the most devastating because he and I had been back on the road and playing together. And I think 91 was his last gig with us, um, beginning of ni- 91. And his wife, I remember his wife saying to me, he's not well enough to, to carry on. And he was having some problems with alcohol. I think it all came to a head towards the end of 1990 when he had an epileptic fit at a sound check. And I didn't know anything about this, that he was suffering from that. Because mm. you can still do things yeah. if you're epileptic. You just need to know the signs as to when. And drinking is not something you should be doing. Alcohol is definitely not what you should be doing if, no. if, if you suffer from some of that. And it, it was a sad moment when I said, look, get yourself together. Don't leave the band, just Go and get yourself together. We'll get a stand, stand-in drummer for a, a year or two, uh, if, if that's how long it's going to take. And he never came back into the band. And I remember talking to um, his wife and, and saying, and she said, there's something else there. And we're, we're having tests. And, of course, he was um, diagnosed with, uh, with leukaemia. Mm-hmm. It then took a couple of years to find a match, I think, uh, for his marrow. Um, and his brother stepped forward, uh, a brother that I wasn't... It's horrible to say you don't know the full family of, of your band members, but I didn't. No. You know, they knew mine, because my, my family used to come to gigs. Right. And uh, and there were, you know, I've still, still got loads of photos of my brothers and sisters backstage and my, yeah. my mum and dad, and but I hardly got to meet their families. Mm. You know, I... I now um, I'm still in touch with um, with with Mix, you know, like daughter and um, and his niece and and I know more about the offspring and the the sons and the and the daughters than I did about the family at the time when the band was together. Yeah. It, it's um, it's an odd thing. In some ways, uh, if you were a psychiatrist, you would. You, you would have something to say about that, I think. Of course, I met met the wives and saw the kids when they were when they were this big. But beyond that, you know, like brothers and your siblings and family behind, hardly got to meet meet any of them, you know. Yeah. 